The revival of these games, once so renowned, and the source from which our present system of athletics takes its rise, will be welcomed on all sides. It is not saying too much to predict that the Olympic Games will once more gain their great popularity, and the entire world look forward to seeing these quadrennial contests. The Evening Star, March 21st, 1896. It's hard to imagine life today without the Olympics, but its success relied heavily on the outcome of that first Olympiad. As we'll see with the 1900 and 1904 games, success in Athens didn't guarantee a smooth ride for the revived Olympics. Over the years, the games have flopped and floundered through poor management, political controversies, international conflicts, world wars, and now a global pandemic. Given this, it's amazing they have survived this long. But Athens was certainly do or die for the games. This was the Barons' pitch to the world, that an international sports festival was possible, beneficial, and could even be quite successful. If the Athens games failed, I'm not sure the Baron would get another chance to bring back the Olympics with the grandeur he desired, or at all. Thankfully for the Baron... The first Olympiad was more than a sporting success. These games changed the world. The outside world had its effects on the games through the international participation the Baron wanted. Citizens of various countries were able to learn about their foreign counterparts through their own experiences, rather than through newspapers or national propaganda. Customs from one corner of the earth were now shown on a global stage. The international makeup of the games allowed for cultural displays in the stands just as much as on the field. The American customs, in particular, brought a delightful new flavor to the European sporting world. Sprinkled throughout the official report are gems of commentary about the organized cheers of the Boston Athletic Association. Following James Connolly's victory in the triple jump, the official report notes... All the spectators applauded enthusiastically, and their shouts mingled with the prolonged cheering of the countrymen of the victor, the peculiarity of which excited much amusement. Later, when Robert Garrett proved victorious over his Greek counterparts in the shot put, The excitement of the American spectators was at its climax, and from all parts of the stadium resounded their strange hurrahs. And when Ellery Clark led the American sweep of the podium following the high jump competition, One can imagine the joy of the Americans, which expressed itself in their absurd shouts when the American flag waved again on high. Thankfully, athlete Thomas Curtis gives us the American perspective in his book High Hurdles and White Gloves. I think it was on the third or fourth day of the Games that the Americanization of Europe began. Our team sat in a box not far from that of the King of Greece, and whenever the circumstances seemed to call for it, such as a win for the United States or a particularly good performance— we gave the regular BAA cheer, which consisted of BAA, rah, 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 three times, followed by the name of the individual performer who had evoked it. This cheer never failed to astonish and amuse the spectators. They had never heard organized cheering in their lives. During one of the intervals between the events, we were much surprised to see one of King George's aides-de-camp, An enormous man, some six feet tall, walk solemnly down the track, stop in front of us, salute, and say, His Majesty, the King, requests that you, for him, will make one more that funny sound. 
We shouted, B-A-A, rah, 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 three times, and then ended up with a mighty Zito Hellas, whereupon the king rose and snapped into a salute, and everyone applauded vigorously. King George was much intrigued by this barbarian custom. When we breakfasted with him the day after the competition of the games, he asked us to cheer in the middle of breakfast. The first Olympiad made its impact on the world in a very specific, tangible way. In September of 1896, the Knickerbocker Athletic Club in New York hosted various sporting events specifically modeled after the Athens Games. The New York events included the discus throw, 110-meter hurdles, the triple jump, foot races of various lengths, and the pole vault. Olympic champions Thomas Burke, James Connolly, and William Hoyt all reached the podium in their respective events and received good press. But the real story was another event, featured for the very first time in the U.S. You see, what began as a simple suggestion by Michelle Brial became a worldwide phenomenon, a cornerstone of the Olympics and a staple of American athletics. I'm referring, of course, to the marathon the 25-mile race born from the modern Olympic Games. And if the Knickerbockers wanted to mimic the Olympics, the marathon was a must. 28 men started at the public square in Stamford, Connecticut, and 19 of them finished the race at the Columbia Oval, near what is now Williams Bridge Oval. John J. McDermott won the race with a time of 3 hours, 25 minutes, and 55 seconds. The following spring, on April 19, 1897, the Boston Athletic Association held its own marathon road race. John J. McDermott won this one as well, with a time of 2 hours, 55 minutes, and 10 seconds, even beating Spiredon Luis's Olympic record by about 3.5 minutes. McDermott has been somewhat lost to history. Details about his life before or after these two marathon races are at best extremely scarce, and it's difficult to pinpoint accurate information because of how surprisingly popular the name John J. McDermott is. But McDermott's name is firmly planted in sports history as the winner of the first marathon race held in the U.S. and as the very first winner of the Boston Marathon. It's hard to imagine life today without the Boston Marathon, or the marathon race in general. But had it not been for Brial and the 1896 Olympic Games, the word marathon would have a strictly ancient Greek connotation. Not every effect of the Games was so positive. When an athlete from one country beats an athlete of another country in a sporting event, people often claim national superiority as the key factor. For example, To many who witnessed the Miracle on Ice in the 1980 Winter Games, this victory wasn't just some Americans beating some Russians in a game of hockey. It was the United States of America defeating the USSR and communism. Even the lesser-known competitions of the Olympics tend to play a factor through the national medal count. We may have lost the 100-meter, but our boys won the 1,000-meter canoe sprint to add a gold to our tally. This goes hand-in-hand with last episode's discussion of sports being both a method of worldwide unity and a method of national superiority. A much more cynical, or perhaps more sinister, view of the effects of the Games is one which sees the Olympics as a catalyst for war. 
In April of 1897, just a year after the closing of the First Olympiad, war broke out in the Mediterranean as Greece and Turkey battled for the Ottoman-controlled island of Crete. Conflict between the two nations over Crete increased steadily since the 1870s, exacerbated by religious persecution and totalitarian overreach on the island. The people of Crete wanted independence from the Ottomans and union with Greece. Revolts against the Ottomans in the late 1880s poured powder into the keg. Violence between the Greek and Turkish communities, culminating in the destruction of the Christian district of Hanya, lit the fuse. And the Thirty Days' War over Crete began. Now, I'm neither Greek nor Turkish, and I'm not well-versed in the history of Greece-Turkey relations, although I recognize that the conflicts between the two are not entirely in the past. I'm also not eager to turn this into a podcast about European wars. But there is a connection of sorts between the 1896 Olympics and the Thirty Days' War, and it's one that will surface again. It's the idea that the Olympic Games could so embolden and so unite a nation that its people and government have a power trip and seek world domination. Coubertin sought to dispel the notion and to protect the Games from accusations of warmongering. To the rest of the world, the revival of the Olympiads was still no more than a brilliant, picturesque item of news. On Greek minds, it was having the effect of the most potent elixir. So much so, in fact, that when a year later war broke out between Greece and Turkey for the liberation of Crete, the Olympic Games were blamed for being largely responsible and having served as a screen for the preparation of this bellicose enterprise by enabling delegations from the Greek colonies overseas to gather in Athens for warlike discussions. There was very little truth in these allegations. At most, it might be said that the festivities had tended to speed up a movement that had already been preparing beforehand by the force of circumstances. To the idea that the Greco-Turkish War would not have happened if the Olympics hadn't happened, the Baron says, not so fast. The rumors of war began before Athens was even selected as the host city. But is there some truth to the idea that the Olympics sped up the process and hurried the nations into war? The Baron's own writing in December of 1896 shows his acknowledgement of the political effects of the Olympics. In the case of Greece, the games will be found to have had a double effect, one athletic, the other political. But a local and immediate consequence of the games may already be found in the internal politics of Greece. I've spoken of the active part taken by the crown prince and his brothers in the labors of the organizing committee. It was the first time that the heir apparent had had an opportunity thus coming into contact with his future subjects. The authority, mingled with perfect liberality, with which he managed the committee, his exactitude in detail, and more particularly his quiet perseverance when those about him were inclined to hesitate and to lose courage, make it clear that his reign will be one of fruitful labor, which can only strengthen and enrich his country. The Greek people have seen him at work, and have gained respect for and confidence in him. The renewed patriotic fervor of the Greek people was evident, and no doubt stemmed from the success of the Games and the Greek athletes especially. And as one newspaper suggested in April 1897, King George of Greece, in engaging in war with Turkey, has done so at enormous odds. The patriotism and national feeling of the people has led their ruler to take an ill-advised step. 
If the Olympics caused an increase in patriotism, and patriotism led to the conflict, things don't look so good for the games that are meant to unite rather than divide. But I don't believe the claim that the Olympics cause wars holds much water. I acknowledge that from Turkey's perspective, as one Turkish writer puts it, Greece started the fight with its warlike overtones that increased after the games. And from Greece's perspective, Turkey started the fight with its totalitarian control and rejection of Crete's liberty, in addition to its military actions in April 1897. But neither of these direct the blame to the Olympics, because tensions had increased prior to the Games and even prior to the Paris Congress, so there's no way the conflict stemmed from a high on Olympic success. In fact, Tensions throughout Europe had been so rocky that when the Topeka State Journal reported on the revival of the Games in January of 1896, the article began with a less-than-optimistic tone. Barring the outbreak of a general war in Europe, which would doubtless put an end to the whole project, there will be a high athletic time at Athens next April, when the long-talked-of Olympian Games' revival is to take place. Even if the opener was tongue-in-cheek... It gives an idea of the situation at the time. So while it's fair to suggest that the Olympic Games could have helped unite Greece over the cause of Crete's liberty, I don't think one can argue that an effect of the Games is newly ignited conflict and spontaneous invasions. That's like saying World War I was an effect of the 1912 Stockholm Games, and World War II was an effect of the 1936 Games. I just don't think the Games are that powerful but they make a great scapegoat. Although the games probably didn't inspire the Greco-Turkish War, they did revitalize the nation. The glory once associated with Greece in ancient times returned in glimpses to the people and the land. And that was something they weren't quite ready to lose. You see, besides the brewing military conflicts, Greece had a terrible national debt lingering overhead. The nation went completely bankrupt by the end of 1893, which makes the June 1894 decision by the Paris Congress to have Greece host the Games quite the twist of fate. As we learned in episode one, Coubertin wanted the Games to start in 1900 in Paris and then circulate around the globe every four years after that. But with the various references to the glorious games of antiquity, and with the fondness and romanticism that accompanied such recollections, it was hard to imagine the revival of the games taking place anywhere else. At first, the idea of hosting the Olympics brought distress to the Greek government. How on earth will they fund all that's necessary to prepare for the games? And if they can fund the games, somehow, how will that look when they have a mountain of debt left to be paid? As we know from our earlier episodes, the preparations were funded largely through subscriptions, and the games were a great success. The sunshine in Athens seemed just a little bit brighter after the closing ceremony. So why not keep a good thing going? Why not continue to climb out of the pit by clinging to that which was quintessentially Greek? Why not host the games in Athens? Permanently. The idea was brought forth publicly by the King of Greece during the 1896 Olympics. On the seventh day of the Games, during a breakfast for the athletes and notable guests of the Games, King George gave a toast. On leaving Greece, our foreign guests will, I'm sure, testify to the progress of this country, 
which has enabled us in comparatively so short a time to work so successfully for a worthy inauguration of the Olympic Games. Greece, who has been the mother and nurse of the Olympic Games in ancient times, and who had undertaken to celebrate them once more today, can now hope, as their success has gone beyond all expectations, that the foreigners, who have honored her with their presence, will remember Athens as the peaceful meeting place of all nations, as the tranquil and permanent seat of the Olympic Games. The words came as a shock to the Baron, who admitted in his memoir, I decided to act as if I were stupid, pretending not to understand. I decided to ignore the king's speech on the pretext of ambiguity. Speaking half in Greek, half in French, he had not used identical terms when repeating his proposal to fix the permanent headquarters of the games in Athens. But the speech wasn't the end of it. The Greek and foreign newspapers picked up the story, often siding with the king or publishing the sentiments of those who did. On May 3, 1896, the New York Times printed a letter from the American athletes to the crown prince, in which the athletes warmly congratulated the entire Greek committee and nation for their success in hosting the Games. The letter states, The existence of the stadium as a structure so uniquely adapted to its purpose, the proved ability of Greece to completely administer the Games, and, above all, the fact that Greece is the original home of the Olympic Games— all these considerations force upon us the conviction that these games should never be removed from their native soil. Oh boy. The official report of the 1896 games, published the same year, carried on the sentiment. Harlabos Aninos wrote the commentary of the sporting events and ceremonial activities at the games. He concluded the report with these words. On the next following day, the foreign guests began to depart from Greece. May we therefore express the hope that we have persuaded them to agree with the concluding part of the king's speech. May Greece be destined to become the peaceful meeting ground of all nationalities, and may Athens become the permanent seat of the Olympic Games. The Baron wasn't having any of it. He ignored the statement from the American athletes claiming the Americans had been made to sign it, and he battled against the press the best way he knew. I acted as if I was unaware of what was going on, the part of a man who will not and therefore cannot hear anything. But ignoring the problem doesn't make it go away. And the Greeks worked hard to gain the necessary traction. In the summer and fall of 1896, the mayor of Athens, Timolean Philemon, and the mayor of Boston, Josiah Quincy VI, corresponded back and forth and sent gifts to each other in recognition of their city's roles in making the games a success. Athens with hosting the games, and Boston with dominating them. Philemon hoped that the Boston Athletic Association would use its influence to support Athens hosting the games in 1898. This idea sprang from IOC President Demetrius Vikalis's compromise, which sought to appease Greece and the Baron. What if there were other games that occurred every four years but were staggered to occur between each of the Olympic Games? And what if these staggered, or intercalated, games were always set in Athens? Could the people of Athens count on Mayor Quincy and the people of Boston to help that dream become reality? Quincy responded, confident that Boston and all Americans who had any interest in sports would support Athens as the permanent host of the Olympic Games. It seemed the Barons' games were slipping away from him. 
The Baron couldn't claim ignorance forever. He made it known, in no uncertain terms, that any games which fell outside of the official IOC-run games could not be called Olympic. The Greeks weren't thrilled with having their games play second fiddle to the Baron's. If the games were born in Greece, why would Greece have to caveat their games with names like Interim or Intercalary? The matter was set to go before the IOC as part of the next Olympic Congress. The Congress took place in France in 1897, but with the Greeks recovering from the Greco-Turkish War, Vikalis couldn't make the meeting. The Baron capitalized on Vikalis's absence. Rather than mention the topic of a permanent host, the Baron, who was now the IOC president in anticipation of the 1900 Paris Games, directed the Congress to his own agenda. Hygiene education, and history relating to physical education. The Congress would help the Baron's fight for physical exercise to be on equal footing with academic exercise, and it would reaffirm the importance of the IOC for its members. But it would not touch the question of Greece as a permanent host. Not if the Baron had anything to say about it. The Athenian press tried to portray the Baron as a villain, and a bill regarding Greece as the permanent host came before the Greek parliament. Neither action made the necessary headway to cause the 1900 games to switch from Paris to Athens. The Baron, the IOC, Greeks' debt crisis, and the ongoing conflict between Greece and Turkey were all too much to overcome. There was no way Greece would host the 1900 games, although a compromise was made following Vikalis' suggestion. In the time between each Olympiad, another set of games, later known as the Intercalated Games, would take place in Athens. However, for various reasons, which we will discuss in a later episode, the first and only Intercalated Games took place in 1906. One would think that this marks the end of the debate about Greece as a permanent host. One would think. But in 1976, after two world wars, severe economic depressions, Olympic boycotts, terrorism at the Games, and ever-rising international political conflicts, stability for the Olympic Games seemed like a worthy cause to consider. New Zealand's IOC member Lance Cross suggested the IOC revisit the idea of a permanent host as it might alleviate many of the issues which face the Games, including financial pressures on the host country and political conflicts surrounding the selected host. He added that the site should be a neutral one. U.S. Senator Bill Bradley had a similar idea, but with a more specific place in mind. The Olympics should be situated permanently in Greece, the country of their origin. All nations which compete in the Games should help underwrite the expense of a permanent facility that ultimately might become self-sustaining. Every four years, the world's youth would return to Olympia in a spirit of friendship to compete in the finest athletic installation in the world. At the 79th IOC session in Prague in 1977, 80 years after Vikalis requested the IOC to discuss it, the proposal finally reached the session agenda. The general consensus favored circulatory games over a permanent site, but the IOC asked the Greek members to form a committee looking into the realistic possibility of the proposal and to present their findings the following year. The proposal was left off the IOC agenda in 1978 and then fizzled out as the Greek government failed to offer specific ways the proposal might work in practice. 
The American government brought up the idea again in 1980 in an effort to remove the games from their summer host, Moscow. Konstantin Karamanlis, the Prime Minister of Greece and the one who originally passed the Greek proposal onto the IOC in 1976, wrote again to the IOC in January 1980. In a nod to the Games of Antiquity, during which the Olympic truce halted military conflicts between the various Greek city-states to allow safe travel for the athletes, Karamanlis told the IOC of his nation's plan. Greece proposes to simplify the solution of these problems by offering and near the actual site of ancient Olympia, a suitable sports venue for the permanent celebration of the Games. This site would be declared neutral territory on the basis of an international agreement, which would guarantee the rights regarding the installations and the inviolability of the place, and which would recognize the decisive role of the Olympic Committee in the world of sport. Greece, in any case, is ready to discuss any arrangements that your committee might consider necessary in this respect. Their proposed site was 1,250 acres, located to the southwest of ancient Olympia, and it would become the IOC's jurisdiction and thus a neutral territory. The idea was popular enough to garner a lot of talk, but no action. The IOC seemed to be in a perpetual state of, hmm, that's a good idea, we'll have to look into that. In 1981, at the 84th IOC session, the members drafted a response to the Greek government politely declining their proposal. The thanks-but-no-thanks response cited the fact that the IOC had already selected the hosts for the 1984 and 1988 Games, and many countries expressed interest in hosting the 1992 Games. Despite their best efforts, the Greeks have not been able to turn their proposal into action. The question of Greece as the permanent host of the Games began in 1896, with King George's hope that the Olympics, which brought life back into his nation, would continue to do so every four years for the remainder of their existence. The idea of a permanent host sprang up periodically, especially during global seasons of particularly high tensions. But it has never resulted in an IOC decision to actively move towards implementing that proposal. Part of this lack of action falls on the IOC, which hasn't seemed too keen on a permanent host. Part of this falls on the Greeks, who had not provided the IOC with the requested details for the proposal's practical execution. Perhaps one day the attitude of the IOC will change, or the Greeks will have such convincing evidence that the IOC has no choice but to settle the games in Athens. Until then, the debate will resurface about every four years as it did most recently in 2016 in response to the Rio Games. There were even petitions circulating online from various groups, hoping that the IOC would bring the Games back to Greece permanently. The 1896 Games were make or break for the revived Olympics. They brought together athletes and cultures from around the world in an international sports festival dreamed up by a French baron. The Games returned to the place of their birth after 1,500 years. The modern Games came with modern competitions, shooting and cycling, and an entirely new event with ancient roots, the Marathon. The joy of amateurism and the importance of physical education found a new home in the institution of the Games, 
and the games would find a new home every four years, thanks to the Baron's insistence. Though the Olympic Games carried on after 1896, Greece would have to wait over 100 years for its next chance to host them. The ancient games may have been restricted to Olympia, but the modern games would see the world. Thanks for listening to the Games Podcast. This episode was written and produced by Olivia Cheney. The intro music is from Aaron Copeland's Fanfare for the Common Man. The sound effects, transitional music, and theme song are from zapsplat.com. Primary source quotes are read by Cameron Cheney. You can find him on Fiverr as Moose Gone Mad. The transcript for this episode of The Games is available at thegamespodcast.wordpress.com. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, or any episode of The Games, feel free to reach out via the WordPress site. You can also reach out on Instagram by searching at The Games Podcast and on Facebook by searching The Games Podcast. Bonus material is posted to Instagram and Facebook, so be sure to follow The Games Podcast while you're there. Special thanks to Gail Cheney for voicing Stamata Raviti, to Rebecca Brewster-Stevenson for editing the scripts, and to Stephen Krotz for providing guidance on the subject matter. This episode concludes Season 1, the 1896 Athens Games. I hope you enjoyed learning about the first Olympiad. If you enjoyed this episode, I would so appreciate it if you could share it with your friends or leave a rating or review. It means a lot. In the next season, we'll look at the 1900 Paris Games, the games which the Baron hoped would kick off the revival of the Olympics. He had to take a back seat in 1896 and bide his time for the Paris Games. But was it worth the wait? Find out in Season 2 of The Games. <laughs>